0: Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Theater, as a commentary on the condition of society, is the subject of this edition of Radio Curious. The topic is the relationship of police and black men in America in 2015. Our guest is Michael Jean Sullivan, the resident playwright, director, and principal actor in 2015 Freedomland, this year's production of the San Francisco Mime Troupe. The first question and answer on the Frequently Asked Questions page of the San Francisco Mime Troupe's website is, why do you call yourself a mime troupe if you talk and sing? The answer is we use the term mime in its classical and original definition. The exaggeration of daily life in story and song. When Michael Jean Sullivan and I visited by phone from his home in San Francisco on June 29, 2015, I asked him if 2015 Freedomland was an exaggeration of daily life in story and song from his perspective as the playwright.
1: It's a slight exaggeration. Normally, uh, exaggeration might mean simply that we're taking of true events, but but making them sequential. You know, like how many times a day does your door get kicked in by the cops? You know, depending on what neighborhood you live in, probably not more than once per day. But you're having to deal in that um, in you know under siege with the police. So that feeling that, translating the feeling of, well, it happens every once in a while to, but you have the feeling that it could happen at any moment. So when you're, when I'm writing a play, I might have it happen two or three times in a day, you know, to have these sweets go on. So there is an exaggeration there, but the exaggeration is based in uh, uh, the feeling that this could happen at any time and the feeling of being under siege.
0: So when you play the lead role of the grandfather, you're home on stage watching television, sitting on your couch, and the door is busted in.
1: There was a point where that was happening um, more in San Francisco. I remember uh, one of the another piece that I wrote for Huffington, uh, where I listed all of these different situations that had come up. Where you know, one time a black man was killed sitting on his sofa watching television, holding a remote. The cops said they thought it was a gun. Another time, a c- cop kicked in a door. Another older black man in San Francisco, he was sweeping. He was holding a broom. They killed him. Said they thought it was a gun. And it was a wrong door raid, which happens quite frequently. The only reason these things don't happen more in San Francisco right now is because the black population in San Francisco has dropped precipitously in the last uh, couple of decades. Before that, it happened more.
0: The population of black people dropping precipitously is the cause of fewer raids?
1: Yeah. You know, there are fewer black people to brutalize. So it doesn't mean that San Francisco isn't necessarily a more, you know, in some ways people go, oh, San Francisco, this beautiful, great liberal city. Um, I've, you know, written about the number of times I've been pulled over by the police in San Francisco, in beautiful, wonderful, rainbow-riding San Francisco, For no reason, just they get pulled over, they check my license, I'm like looking around I'm like, oh, I'm the black guy. I got pulled over once, a friend of mine was driving, he was white. We got pulled over, they pulled me out, frisked me, ran all of my information. They didn't even check his. It was just, I was a black guy in the car. This is just all in San Francisco.
0: After the fact, what do you find uh, that you're able to do about that behavior on the part of the police? nothing
1: they they always will justify it the one time where the cops i was sitting in my own car um which at that moment was actually out of gas and uh and i was looking for a pen uh but it was legally parked on the side of the street around the corner from where i was living and uh suddenly there's a flashlight and a gun to my head and a cop saying they're going to shoot me now the reason they there was one cop next to me with a gun to my head another cop behind the car under what circumstances are the police supposed to draw their gun? It's only when there's an, uh, a clear threat to someone. I was just sitting in my car. What they had decided was that my car was unregistered. Now, even if my car wasn't registered, it's still not a shoot-the-guy offense. They had decided that my car, the car wasn't registered, therefore it must be stolen. The fact was the car was registered, and it had never been reported as stolen. They just came up with that because of some glitch in the matrix in their computer. But even if it was um, unregistered, it still wasn't reported as stolen. They had no cause to pull their guns on me. So they drag me out of the car, and I have to lay down in the street, and they're cuffing me and stuff. And that part in the, in the play where I say uh, they ask me for my identification, and I reach for it, and they just get ready to shoot. That's because of that incident. I, was, I asked them, is there a way I can reach for my wallet without you shooting me? And they said no. In the end, those cops, after they realized their mistake, they still took me in. They still took me down and and cuffed me to the bench at the police station and left embarrassedly. And the guy, luckily for me, the guy who was the night clerk there, the sergeant, was like, why are you here? Because they didn't put me in a cell. And I was just like, I don't know. I didn't do anything. And they said, oh, and he checked my record. He said, oh, you have some outstanding parking tickets, but they shouldn't have brought you in for that. But now that you're here, I can't let you go until you pay the tickets. So a friend of mine had to come and pay the tickets. All of that. I came that close to dying for no real good reason. And the cops, they were like, well, we're totally justified in doing this. So everybody has a different response in those circumstances. Mine is to write about them. You know, I write articles and I write plays to try to, I uh, feel like that's, a, that's the best way I can kind of get the word out and say, this is what it's like. Even when you're sitting back saying, oh, I live, you know, I was here during the summer of love, or I'm here now, and we've got all of these wonderful rights. Now, nah, this is what it's like.
0: In this edition of Radio Curious, we're visiting with Michael Jean Sullivan, the resident playwright for the San Francisco Mime Troupe, and the writer of the 2015 play of the Mime Troupe, titled 2015 Freedom Land. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Michael, the memories that you just shared with us, you make them into a play. They can't be erased from your life. You're writing plays about them. Uh, You're telling stories about them. What do you find to be the reaction of the people who see uh, Freedom Land in varying venues uh, the rural venue like here in Ukiah, California, or Garberville, California, compared to uh, San Francisco?
1: It is different, you know, that when we're dealing with a, um, with a more rural audience, especially in a place like though, in Ukiah or in Point Arena or in Redway, they sometimes have a perspective of, of city life that is very different, meaning that they have it at a distance. And they kind of say, well, we understand this. This is dreadful. Because they don't have to make an admission about necessarily where they're living. They're normally living in a reasonably homogeneous area. But they can see San Francisco. They can see Denver. They can see New York. They can see Los Angeles at a distance and and understand it. Whereas an audience in a city, a lot of times this is news to them. They may feel they're following these stories on the news. They're following them on the Internet they are saying, well, we have uh, a sympathy for this. But generally speaking, uh, many people, and this is one of the main reasons we're doing the show, is they normally come in contact with these stories after the fact. They come in contact with, well, this kid was brutalized, um, but they didn't know that kid before. You know, San Francisco has become more and more segregated. The schools have become increasingly segregated, I think, They're like, uh, I think I read they're as segregated now as they were in, like, 1990, I think. And they're becoming increasingly segregated Um, as parents, mainly the white parents that are moving here, are either pulling their kids out of school completely and putting them in charter schools or moving to uh, areas that they they feel like, well, this is a, a, quote, unquote, safer area, which normally means really white Neighborhood, So the schools are becoming segregated. The city itself is more, much more segregated. So, though someone can feel themselves to be an um, open-minded liberal in San Francisco, an open-minded white liberal in San Francisco, they're not really in contact with many non-whites, and particularly not many blacks. Uh, and... So their understanding of the relationship between the state or the police and blacks is what they get from the internet, and they see some story about a kid who is beaten up or shot or a home, uh, you know, a, a wrong door knock that the police do or something like that, and they go, "My goodness, that's terrible," but they don't know those people. They they just don't know them. They don't. Uh, they haven't come in contact with them. So to try to do a story like like Freedom Land, where we want the audience to get to know these people first, instead of retrospectively, we want them to say, these are these nice, law-abiding folk."
0: Share with us, if you would, please, the story of Nathaniel Haywood, uh, who is your grandson in the play uh, when you play the role of the older gentleman who was sitting at home uh, watching TV on his couch, as we mentioned earlier.
1: Well, Nathaniel is a, a mid-20s black man who's been um, in the army, shipped to different places, uh, basically based in Afghanistan, who is uh, finally coming home. His grandfather has wanted him to stay in the army as part of a plan, this, uh, this plan that he tells Nathaniel, his revolutionary plan. He desperately wants him to get in there like Spook who sat by the door and learn all of these Uh, Weapons and tactics and strategies to bring them home for a revolutionary army. In actuality, Malcolm, the grandfather, wants Nathaniel in the army because he feels it's safer for him to be in the army than it is to be on the streets as a black man in the United States right now. That he'll have a better chance of, of not being brutalized. He'll have a better chance of just having a job. His life will be easier in the army than it will be in East Oakland or in Richmond, or in San Francisco, or in St. Louis, or wherever. That's one of the things about the show. is we didn't, I, I purposefully did not set it in a particular place. It's not in a big city. It's not in a small town. I want it to be pretty much anywhere. Um, so Nathaniel, who is a law-abiding citizen, but feels that his, you know, he should have certain rights. This is what he's fighting for. He's fighting for freedom land. He's fighting for the United States, and when he comes home and realizes this is what's been happening to his grandfather, you know, the stories that his grandfather's told him about the Black Panthers and the way it was in the old days and how we've got to change everything, Nathaniel's kind of rejecting that. He just wants to live a good, decent life. He doesn't want to be part of a revolutionary army. He just wants to have a nice little place, have a job, and have a safe place to raise his kids when he eventually has kids. That's all. Something that should simply not be too much to ask. And that is simply not possible.
0: Often, and I'm wondering if this is your experience, when a person writes a play or writes a novel, they often speak for themselves and what they would like in the world. Is that your experience in writing 2015 Freedom Land?
1: Well, with most yeah, I'd say actually all of the mime Troop shows I've written, because we are a theater of activism. the The whole uh, role of the play is to, first of all, to entertain the audience. You know, because if you can't entertain them, then they don't care. They get bored. They leave. Um, but also to activate them, to make them think about something in a particular way, to heighten the hypocrisy of the six circumstances. In which they live by putting things together and saying, you know, well, you know, you may be upset about what you see on page one, but you should also be upset what we say on the business page of the newspaper, you know. And we'll take those two things and put them together in a way that the audience maybe hasn't thought about. and Go, oh my goodness, this stuff is all linked. Um, so we're always trying to activate people. We're always trying to uh, rouse them to to anger them in a way, so that they see an injustice, whether it's perpetrated on others or injustices that have been perpetrated upon them, and feel the need to do something. It's really important for us that the revolution doesn't end on stage. There ha- there, it, we, we present these issues, but we want to make sure that the audience feels there's something that they must do. And that's really the object of theater in general. Is It's like I say, it's all political. You're either holding the status quo or challenging the status quo. And most shows are challenging the status quo, whether in interpersonal relationships, class-wise, culturally, in um, not just with the Mime Troupe, but most good theater, but particularly with the Mime Troupe.
0: I think that was clear here in Ukiah uh, at your June 27th. 2015 show, uh, I was told that uh, one woman walked out with her young son, and others said that the play was, quote, extreme and unrealistic, and others said it was offensive. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, that's the thing, is that people feel, you know, depending on how, how where you are in the culture, where you are in the society, if you see... Um, like like the the woman who uh, cut down the Confederate flag uh, recently in uh, I think South Carolina. Is that, was that an offensive act? Some people say, absolutely, what about freedom of speech? What about, you know, we, shouldn't we be able to do anything we want to? Well, no, you don't want to leave, really live in a country where everybody can do whatever they want to. That's just a mess. Um, there are people who will say, well, you're misrepresenting the police. Well, this is my experience and a great many people's experience with the police is... How, you know, how their relationship with us, black men in particular, and the society in general, there are, uh, you know, different aspects. And our job, if we're only telling people things they already know and agree with, then um, we've failed. We need to make sure to always challenge them. So while there will always be people that will say, especially in a show like this, that they're offended by it because they don't want to acknowledge that this is kind of the world we live in. There will be more people who will come up, like after this show, crying and saying, "You know, thank you so much for doing this show. It, you know, it's so powerful. This is exactly the experience that um, that my friends have had, or or uh, that um, that I've experienced." This is one of the things, particularly with with this show. We had a similar show uh, when we did a show about. Palestine and Israel many, many years ago, uh, seeing double, where we had a lot of people who were just like, that is not the way Israel is, and this is not how the Palestinians are. you know, And you're misrepresenting this. So I was like, no, nope, these are actually based on real circumstances. Uh, that idea, like I said, of, of, of challenging folks and making sure that they're kind of in an uncomfortable place that they have to accept that this is the society they live in. And not everybody wants to.
0: Taking the approach, perhaps, the attitude that race is a non-issue is, in fact, the issue.
1: Yeah. The whole idea... The idea of living in a post-racial society is, in my mind, um, verging on insane um, because, for a few different reasons. One is, we don't. And the other one is, why would we want to? I don't want to live in a post-racial society. I think that it's, it's a re- ridiculous, like living in a post-sexual society. You know, women and men are not the same thing. And a, what the experience that a woman has had is sexism, that she's had to experience all of these things—the the, whether it's catcalling or not getting jobs or how she's been treated in school—all of these different things that have happened to her have shaped her as a person. To then see her as not a woman doesn't elevate her; it negates a big part of who she is. And it's the same for non-whites. We are not, and there's always there'll always be some white person, who's like, well, I don't see you as black. Why not? What's wrong with your eyeballs? You're not seeing me as not black. To doesn't do me any good. It makes you more comfortable. It makes it so that you don't have to deal with, the, with political history, with actual history, with, with things that have come up. So if I bring up you know, in the course of talking about stuff, being pulled over by the police, or, you know, being called a nigger on the street, or things like that, and that makes you uncomfortable, you're uncomfortable with me because you have a problem. You should be uncomfortable with the society that accepts that. And by trying to uh, erase race as a historical contributor to where how we our society is now, you're being ahistorical and kind of nuts. It, race is not a bad thing. It's simply a particular history. How it's used against people is the bad thing.
0: Well, Michael Jean Sullivan, I want to thank you very much for being with us on Radio Curious. And well, thank before, you. Before we close, I'd like to ask you about an aha or eureka moment that you experienced in your life that shapes the way you live.
1: Uh, there are so many, but I'd say one of them is uh, when I was a little kid, I uh, I really didn't go to see much theater, none, really, my parents just weren't into theater, and uh, but they did take me to see a national tour of the musical Hair. Now, we went to see Hair because my parents, wanted, we didn't go to see much theater, but they took me to every protest that was going on, me and my sisters, and uh, so we were used to being chased by the police, and... Um, and, uh, you know, keeping up on, on what's going on politically. So we go to see the musical Hair when we first moved to San Francisco when I was a little kid. And the intermission of that production, I don't know about other productions, but um, the actors are on stage, they're talking about burning draft cards and, and how they're going to struggle against, you know, the man. And suddenly, the doors of the theater get kicked open. And this is a big theater, it's the Orpheum Theater in San Francisco. Uh the doors get kicked open and all of these um, police officers in, in you know in full riot gear come charging down the uh the aisles. You know, dozens of them, and cli- they climb up on the stage, and they're clubbing the actors and shoving them off the stage. You know, this is obscene. This is, you know, this is free speech gone wrong. You're all commies and hippies and pot smokers and get out of here. They beat them all off the stage, and they turn and face the audience, and they've got their riot shields, you know, that are reflective, so you can't see their faces, and they've got their billy clubs. And then the house lights came up because that was intermission. And that's always stuck with me. I thought it was a brilliant way of bringing what was really going on out in the streets directly into the theater. It frightened the whole audience, but it also made them uh, aware of the, like I said, of the danger of just talking about this stuff, the danger that people actually deal with. So, you know, it's not just a play.
0: In a way, you have manifested that on the stage in 2015 Freedomland.
1: Yeah, well, that's, like I said, and for the for the the, troupe, the way sometimes—we don't do it all the time. So I had a show a few years ago where I wrote in a character. Uh, the show was Posibilidad, and it was about the collectivization of workplaces. And I had a few scenes that took place in Argentina, and uh, there was one character. He was a union organizer, you know, a wonderful fellow. He was the lover lead of the show. And at one point, uh, the owner of the factory who had abandoned it then came back with kind of uh, his, well, like a private army because these were based on true stories. And they tried, in a pitched battle, take the factory back. And I had that character beaten to death by the police on stage, the, uh, the, the young hero. And the audience was, like, stunned. And they were like, I, I can't believe you just had a, a, a lead character killed by the cops on stage. And I was like, well, because that's what happens. You know, I want to make sure that you know that, that life is that fragile. And it's a great thing to sit around and sing uh, political tunes and talk about stuff. But there's a danger there. And that danger is, is when you push the society for real change, it becomes really dangerous. As long as you're just talking about it, you know, at this point they will spy on you. They will listen in. They may read your emails and stuff. But you're in danger when you start actually challenging the status quo.
0: Michael Jean Sullivan, what would you like to do with the remainder of your one precious life?
1: Oh, I'd like to help continue to make a country where my son and, and everyone can feel, you know, safe and secure and, and, you know, breathing breathable air, drinking drinkable water, you know, just kind of doing, you know, the thing that everybody says they want to do, basically to help make things, well, not everybody, but uh, make things better so that the world they pass on to their kids is, is at least as good as the one that we had and, and have hopefully better. On the other I also, you know, want to stay in the arts and, and have fun. You know, that's, a, that's another part about, about doing political work. It also still has to be fun, you know. It's not the dreary drab, inevitable, unending struggle. What a miserable existence that is, you know? And I always tell people, nobody nobody sane wants to join a struggle. You want to join a joyous march to inevitable victory. That's what we have to be pitching constantly. And it's got to be fun. One of the biggest problems, in my opinion, with the left is the, 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 the future we kept keep trying to sell to people is uh, less. It's like, well, you can't have this, you can't have that, you can't eat meat, you can't have cars, you can't do this, you can't do this. We've got to find the positive stuff, the fun stuff, and say, this is this wonderful future you're having. Yeah, you won't drive all over the place, but you'll do it this way. We'll have maglev cars, something. We've got to make sure that we have a realistic but fun, interesting, amazing adventure future that we are pitching to people where they can live a brilliant life and not uh, a lessened, diminutive life. And so I want to be part of creating that and part of living it.
0: And finally, Michael Jean Sullivan, is there a book that you could recommend to our listeners?
1: Oh, there are so many. On this particular issue uh, of Freedom Land, uh, the book is um, Rise of the Warrior Cop by Radley Balco. It really is a, a great history of how we've gotten here, not, not just in terms of the brutality the relationship between police and black men, but really about our, how our whole economy shifted decades ago. Through He really kind of starts with the original idea of police and policing and what it's supposed to mean, the difference between police and sheriffs, uh, prison system, all of these different things, and he kind of brings it together to a point of explaining how we live in not just a corporatocracy, but a state where the... The police have become uh, an important part of the economy, you know, that the drug war feeds our economy in all ways. How much of our society is based on crime and punishment at, at all costs? We, you know, parts of the society certainly wouldn't function if everybody, if the police did their job as they should and no one committed crime, big parts of our society would crumble.
0: Well, Michael Jean Sullivan, thank you very much for being with us on Radio Curious.
1: Well, thank you for having me.
0: Michael Gene Sullivan is the resident playwright, director, and a principal actor in 2015 Freedomland, this year's production of the San Francisco Mime Troupe. The book he recommends is The Rise of the Warrior Cop*. The Militarization of America's Police Force by Redley Balco. This program was recorded on June 29, 2015. Radio Curious has over 500 archive editions on our website, radiocurious.org, with new programs published weekly. You may stream, download, subscribe to our podcast service and share them as you wish. They're all free. We appreciate your thoughts, ideas, and comments about our programs and enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The phone is 707-462-6541. Christina Onestead is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.